Here we go. You're listening to Rumination Tuesday, December the 7th in the year of our Lord, 2021. And it's time to listen to our hymn, Hark, a Thrilling Voice is Sounding. And that hymn was supposedly written by a Latin hymn writer, Ambrose of Milan. But further discussion has found out that it doesn't even appear until the 10th century. And Ambrose died in 397. It is also, cer- is also most certainly not his and probably is a hymn that was widely used in the later Middle Ages. The English translation of Edward Coswell, who died in 1878, is one of the most successful of the many translations of this hymn. And so we're going to be taking a look at that right now with our good friend, Mark Laverty. Mark has been on a little while ago with us, about three weeks ago. And unfortunately, Mark Smith today had another assignment, and so he asked he wouldn't be able to be on. But Mark was available, so we thank you very much, Mark, that you're here. Here we go. Here we go. That sounds familiar. Where'd you get that from? (laughs) All righty. Tell a little bit about yourself. Your organist where? I'm the music director and organist at Zion Lutheran Church in Maryland Heights, Missouri, and I've been there 23 years since I was five. Um, But I'm also a piano instructor in Chesterfield in my piano studio, and then I play concerts around the country uh, at a lot of churches, mainly Bach, but also Chopin and Mozart and other composers. And a lot of times that is a... For, for a pro-life rally, too. Yeah, sometimes a uh, life organization at a church uh, will want to raise funds uh, for their efforts, and uh, they'll have a concert to benefit the uh, the cause. And you have a CD. Uh, what's the name of that, and how can people get a hold of it? I do have a CD. Thanks for mentioning. Uh, it's called Music of Bach. It's all Bach music for keyboard, uh, piano. And uh, if they want to find out more about that and myself, they can go to uh, marklaverty.com. That's pretty simple, Mark Laverty. That's 
L-A-V-E-R-T-Y. I don't have to Correct. spell Mark because we all know that's J-O-H-N. Okay. All righty. <laughs> MarkLaverty.com. Boy. All right. Hark, a thrilling voice is sounding. Originally, the translator had Hark, an awful voice is sounding. Did you know that? Of course. And what did he mean by awful? Well, I think uh, also the word awesome, uh, profound voice uh, to affect our temporal and eternal destiny. Exactly. Awful doesn't mean terrible. It means full of awe. And that's really what he was trying to get across. So without further ado, would you please read the first stanza? Hark, a thrilling voice is sounding. Christ is near, we hear it say. Cast away the works of darkness, all you children of the day. So this is known to be the hymn for the third Sunday in Advent, which we're coming up to right now, which will be on... Of course, December the 12th. And uh, the readings are from Zephaniah, Philippians 4, and Luke 7. We're in the third year of readings. So which gospel is the one that is talked about more than any other? Uh, During Advent? During the third year. Uh, Luke? Yes. Matthew's the first year, Mark's the second, and Luke's the third. And this is all about uh, disciples of John going to Jesus, asking him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus' answer is very, very interesting. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, why would Jesus be saying those things as evidence that he is the one that people were looking forward to coming? Those particular miracles. I haven't thought of that. Yes. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Okay. A lot, of to- a lot of times the answer to why Jesus says something, he's quoting the Old Testament. And sure enough, even in Zephaniah, it, uh, it talks about that he's going to deal with all the oppressors, and I will save the lame, gather the outcasts, change their shame into praise. And there I think of, of course, of the lepers that were cleansed who were outcast. But in regard to this first verse, why the word hark? Wow, that's a good question. I guess to get people's attention. Yes, what would it be used for? There's another hymn. That begins with Hark. Hark the Herald? Yes, very good. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, 
So I think the word hark simply means to listen, yeah. be aware of. This is very important to understand in a sermon that a sermon just doesn't explain kind of what is happening in the Bible, like giving the crucifixion and talking about what happened at what hour, what words he said. It's also explaining the significance of those words for the people sitting in the pew. And, and that's really important. That's what hark means. In fact, uh, my theme for Advent is going through the Bible, taking a look at the word behold. You ever think of that? It occurs a lot. Yes, it occurs a lot of times in the Bible. And what it means is not just look at or see, but understand. Behold, your king is coming to you on a donkey. And it even says the disciples did not understand what was going on on that Palm Sunday till after the resurrection. So they were looking at Jesus on a donkey, but they were not beholding him as the God of gods, the Lord of lords. So, hark a thrilling voice is sounding. Christ is near, we hear it say. What voice is that? Who are they talking about? Um, it could be a reference to John the Baptist. It is a reference. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> because he says, you know, the one about to come after me is greater than I am, who has come to take away the sins. And what was the work of John the Baptist according to this first verse? To compel people to um, cast away their sins, their works of darkness. What does that mean? How do you cast away your sin? What was his message? Repent and be baptized. Exactly. Repentance is so critical. Repentance means not being sorry for the consequences of your sin, but being sorry for your sin. It's contrition over sin. And the only time you can have proper contrition is if you believe that Jesus is your Savior, because you're contrite over what you are doing to Jesus. And the way to cast away the works of darkness is to repent of them. How does that cast away the works of darkness? To repent. How does it cast away? Yes, where do well, they go? Why do they go to Christ? Exactly. And specifically, they go to the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul says everything is about the cross. So in the first stanza, you've got John the, Bapti John the Baptizer, and you've got <laughs> Jesus Christ. Very, very good. Any other comments on stanza one? Uh, well, yeah, the the word Christ is used twice there. Well, I'm sorry, once. Uh, it's used in the second verse also. 
Yes, yes. So Christ is the key to this verse. It's really interesting. We don't know who the original author was, but whoever it was, it became very significant at a certain time in the church year. So I'll there read. Is, there is a, a word of law in that first stanza, cast away the works of darkness. Yes, it sounds like it's a word of law, but the way it's cast away is to repent, be contrite over it, which only the Holy Spirit gives you the power to do that because it also includes faith. And it's therefore a kind of a light of the gospel that it can be cast away. Because if your works are not cast away, then guess who pays for them on Judgment Day? We do. Yes, exactly. All right, stanza two, startled at the solemn warning, let the earth bound soul arise. Christ its son, all sloth dispelling, shines upon the morning skies. So that was your point, that that was a word of law, because it even says at the beginning that we are startled at the solemn warning. There's no warnings in the gospel, are there? You mean in the gospel message? Yes. Correct. Yes. So let the earthbound soul arise. Okay, well, what's that talking about? When does the earthbound soul arise? Well, I guess it uh, relates to uh, when we're dead in our trespasses and the Holy Spirit uh, touches us and brings us alive. Well said. That's exactly what Ephesians says, that while we're here on earth, we not only have died with Christ, that's baptism, but we also have been risen from the dead in that we have received a wonderful good news of salvation. And of course, that being arisen from the dead will also include, later on we'll talk about that in the hymn, about being risen on the day of judgment. So that's a correct answer, that the earth-bound soul, which means our old Adam, that only thinks in earthly terms, will arise from the dead. And what does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and... The life. Yes. And that life occurs here on earth. Now, there's metaphors throughout the Bible to describe Jesus. In stanza two, what is the metaphor used to talk about Jesus? Well, that's just what I was looking at. Christ is our son. Yes, and that's not spelled S-O-N. How's it no. spelled? S-U-N. Yes, so what is a hymn writer trying to get across with that metaphor? Well, I was just thinking about 
uh, how we know how powerful this, our sun is and how it warms our earth and, uh, and blesses us. But Christ is infinitely greater than even our temporal sun. Yes. So uh, he, like the sun, uh, well, he is infinitely greater and uh, better for us than the sun. Well said. For example, yesterday in driving our 300-mile round trip to preach in Illinois, it was really cloudy out um, early in the morning. And you could not see the sun anywhere. And yet the whole land was bright with light. And that, that helps us understand when we are in the gloom of a cloudy day in our life, Jesus is still there. We may not see him. We may not perceive him with our minds, but with our faith, we know that he is there and will not leave us. So that's important about the sun. Even when you can't see it, it lightens up uh, the whole area that you're in. Plus, he says, um, uh, our sloth or our laziness is dispelled. Yes. So that we now are not just doing good works in order to get to heaven in a lazy way, but we do good works out of love for Jesus Christ. All right, stanza three, if you would read that, please. See, the lamb, so long expected, comes with pardon down from heaven. Let us haste with tears of sorrow, one and all, to be forgiven. So there's two words there that really are meaning the same. Uh, the last word is forgiven. What's the other word in stanza three that means forgiven? Uh, I would say pardon. Yes, excellent. Pardon. That happens sometimes even in a government. Uh, for example, during Vietnam, there were individuals who fled to Canada so they wouldn't be drafted. And at the end of the war, they were pardoned. It didn't mean that what they did was okay, but it meant that they did not have to expect any consequences for their sin. And that's what forgiveness is, where God says, I'm no longer going to hold you accountable for your sin. Why was God able to do that? To whom did he hold your sin accountable? Jesus Christ. Yes. And he died on the cross for that sin. So, the lamb so long expected. And we know they were looking for that lamb. In fact, one of the first times it comes up, lamb, is at the Passover where they put the blood of the lamb over the doorway. And Jesus becomes the lamb that John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb of God who has come to do what? Take away the sin of the world. Yes, and he does that by dying on the cross. 
All right, I'll read stanza four. So when next he comes in glory and the world is wrapped in fear, he will shield us with his mercy and with words of love draw near. Now, how can he shield us? It says the world is wrapped in fear. Does that mean Christians are also wrapped in fear? I would say not. Very good. When you become a Christian, you no longer need to fear the Lord in the sense of being afraid that he will send you to hell. That fear is gone. But the world is still wrapped in fear. A lot of times the word world in the Bible refers to unbelievers. And therefore they're wrapped in fear because when they see Jesus coming, will they have an opportunity to get their sins forgiven? You mean the unbelieving world? Right. No, I think it'll be too late. Exactly. That's what the Bible says. At that point, it'll be too late. And that's why the church has the task of trying to make sure that people hear the word of God so the Holy Spirit may create faith in them. The church now becomes John the Baptist. The church is a shrilling voice that's sounding. And, and that's really important. In fact, in the Old Testament reading from Zephaniah, it talks about Zion, the church, Israel, rejoice and sing aloud. But what I found interesting is verse 17. It talks about the Lord God in your midst. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Have you ever thought about God also singing? No. <laughs> no, I hadn't either. And that was a point in preparation for Sunday, uh, taking a look at this as a possible sermon, that God also is singing. And of course, when we think about it, God is none other than Jesus Christ. And he definitely sang hymns in the synagogue and elsewhere. In fact, some of the things that he said are said to be songs. So, last stanza five, if you would read that, please. And of course, this is a doxological stanza. Honor, which glory. Means, uh, which means we uh, acknowledge and uh, glorify the Trinity. Exactly. Go ahead. Honor, glory, might, dominion to the Father and the Son with the ever-living Spirit while eternal ages run. So what are these items, honor, glory, might, and dominion? Well, those are all the characteristics of our God. Exactly. And all three persons have them. This is a big teaching from the Bible that when Jesus arose into heaven, 
in his human nature, he also had all the attributes that he had in his divine nature. So in his human nature, he was all-powerful. He was all-present. He was all-knowing. And that is different than in his humiliation, where there were things that he did not know and he was weak, he suffered, he died, which never would happen to God in his exaltation. And therefore, Jesus also has the honor, glory, might, and dominion. Any other particular point you'd want to make about the hymn? Well, it uh, in the commentary, it talks about the fact that uh, it talks about Christ's first coming on earth, but then also the second coming. So uh, it wraps things up well. Yes, that's what Advent is all about, Jesus' comings. And there are more than just one or two. There's his coming in the Bethlehem stable, his coming into your heart, his coming on the day of judgment, and also his coming on Palm Sunday, etc., Thanks so much, organist Mark Laverty, and we'll look forward to having you on again. Until then, God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check out to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod.